We're going to be reading from the Bible now. Um, I'll read a passage from the Old Testament and a passage from the New Testament. Our Old Testament passage for today is from Isaiah, um, chapter 26, verses 6 to 8. So that's Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. So verse 6 starts, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. John, we're going to read chapter 11, um, and we're going to read the whole chapter, so buckle in. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to, to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the, in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to the into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he have not opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief, of pri the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jade, for reading that passage to us. Let's pray as we look at this this afternoon. Today we pray with the man to whom Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. So we pray with the man. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Soften our hearts, we pray. Amen. Uh, we, this time last year, as... COVID hit, like many parents, quickly purchased many things to entertain during lockdown, and our uh, COVID purchase was a trampoline. Uh, if you know where we live, we're on a balcony on York Street, so the trampoline was amusement not only for our children, but also uh, many are, are amused as they look up and pass by. It's a strange sight on York Street to see kids jumping up and down. Um, and our youngest likes to sing a nursery rhyme, like 
most of us probably have in the past, that goes like this. Ring-a-ring of roses, a pocket full of poses. Down myself now. A tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. You know it. We all know it. The irony is it's a plague song sung on a plague purchase of the trampoline. Like all classic nursery rhymes, this song, the exact meaning is buried under folklore, but some speculate whether it began in the Middle Ages during a plague. And it was a song to to mock this deadly plague. A rose-coloured ring on the skin was a sign of the first infection. And so flowers and herbs were thought to ward off this disease, but a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down is the grim outcome of death. Uh, We all have different ways of coping with death. Then they mocked it. So Halloween, interestingly, originally was mocking death. The dress-up was not to celebrate it, but to, to mock it. And in earlier times, you can understand why people did mock it, because it was so prevalent, you couldn't escape it. Death was far more communal because life was more communal. Funerals were common and attended by all the community. The aged were part of households usually, and the chicken on the plate was usually in the coop in the morning. Whereas now we we soften it a bit, don't we? Funerals are infrequent in our experience, and we only attend if our, our lives somewhat overlap with this person. But also, too, we have the shift of care being taken out of the home and in services and nursing homes and hospices. And the chickens, well, they come from the fridge, not the coop. We've softened death somewhat as a culture, but we've done more than that, actually. We, we also ignore it somewhat. We put it at arm's length. We want to think about that later on then. That's something that happens to someone else and not now for us. Or we try to make heaven on earth to ignore it and numb it, investing in experience and enjoyment. There's many ways in which we try to cope with death. And there's a good reason for that, because death's an unpleasant thing to think about, isn't it? It's so final. And so it's easy to adopt, as our culture does, a stance to ignore it, soften it. In fact, John Calvin, writing in the 16th century, spoke up about this. He says, We undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. But the moment we turn away, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. So even then, it wasn't something that we sat and reflected on. But in today's passage, we're going to sit and reflect upon death somewhat. But not only death, the death of death through resurrection as well. But what's striking is, as you read the Bible, is that the Bible is never speaking about death in light terms. It never speaks about death in a soft way, or as our culture might sometimes speak of death, like a friend. The way in which Scripture speaks about death is as an enemy. 
1 Corinthians describes death as the last enemy. Because sin and death, as you read in the Bible, they're always an intruder into a good creation. Like a parasite, it feeds on all that is good and, and only seeks to destroy. Death is ultimately an enemy. And if you've experienced death with the lo- uh, a loved one lost, you know this feeling. The nature of death in its finality, it, it hurts, it's painful. And so just a trigger warning as we go through this evening, um, I hope to bring comfort and encouragement, but it is a heavy subject. Yet what we will see tonight is that Jesus came about to bring the death of death. John Donne, a 16th century poet, taunts death in this way. He says, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. The Apostle Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The reality is death to us can seem dreadful and a formidable foe. But in our passage today, we see through the death and resurrection of Lazarus, the beginnings of its ultimate defeat. And we want this to be true, don't we? The question is, as Jesus poses in this reading, will you believe it? We're going to follow the reading under three questions And it's a drama that escalates with three scenes as Jesus encounters three different sets of people. But the three questions we're going to ask throughout it, and I don't know as we read through it whether these are questions that came to your mind. But the first one is, well, why did Jesus wait when he gets the news of Lazarus' illness? And then we get something of his foreknowledge of this event, some understanding of that. So secondly, why did Jesus weep then? if he knew the outcome of this? And finally, how did Jesus win as the last enemy? And we'll make some reflections on sin and suffering on the way through. Why did Jesus wait? Verses 1 through to 16. We're told very early on that Jesus loved this family, family consisting of Martha, Mary and Lazarus. They appear in other parts of the gospel and John really draws attention to the fact that Jesus has real affection for this family and so he gets word that Lazarus has become sick and his life is in the balance Uh, we've been reading up until this point that Jesus has healed the sick healed many strangers he's even healed from a distance in the gospels So we expect, as we read this, for Jesus to go quickly. That's the sister's expectation as well. See, we think, you know, if he loves his family, well, what does love do? Love shows up, doesn't it? But instead, he waits. We're told he waits days. Verses 6 and 7, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us now go back to Judea. The one who could do something seems to do nothing. And I think this is a reality that we have probably all grappled with at some point. Like the sisters, 
we can call out to Jesus through tears and he seemingly doesn't come. C.S. Lewis, uh, who was a university lecturer in Cambridge and Oxford last century, also a, a writer of many great fiction and non-fiction works, uh, married late in life only to very quickly lose his wife to terminal cancer. And writing in a book called A Grief Observed, he says this, Not that I am, I think, in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. In the midst of loss, in the midst of pain, you might ask for relief, for healing, for discernment. You've sought him, perhaps through tears, and let you're, you're left waiting. Rather than relieve suffering, it, the silence almost seems to compound it for you. So why does Jesus wait? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 4, he said, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus responds confidently here to his disciples that death will not be the last word. The sisters don't know this yet. And that these events have been orchestrated by God to bring glory to God. So these words, even at the early stage in the drama, hint that there is some good end because God is good. But we need to recognise that that doesn't discount that there are those waiting and what they might be feeling. Jesus' silence to them would probably mount grief upon grief. It can seem as if he is cold and indifferent. And perhaps that's something that you have felt at some time. But even at this early juncture in the drama, we see a growing perspective that our grief and struggle and suffering will not be the last word. Well, then we encounter in the drama two sisters, Lazarus' two sisters. Lazarus, the man who has been sick and died, his sisters come to Jesus. And in verses 17 to 37, we're going to ask the question, why did Jesus weep? But before that, just to draw some things from these encounters. Firstly, Martha, the elder sister, comes to Jesus in verses 20 to 27. We're told she goes out to meet him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can hear almost in her words the reproach to Jesus. A common saying in psychology is behind anger is, is fear or behind fear is, is pain. And so you can hear the pain in these words. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But she hangs on to hope because she says, I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. There is definitely grief and disappointment in these words, but there is a sense that she still believes that Jesus may be able to help. And Jesus, charged with negligence, replies to her 
In verse 23, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha is of the Jewish people who had a firm belief in the resurrection of the dead at the last day in life after death. So she says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. So she, as an Old Testament believer, believed in the end time resurrection. But you get a sense of the grieving, grieving woman's words because that's well and good, but what about, what about now? Why don't you help now? See, pain isn't easily soothed, is it, by far away hope. And this is where many of us often stand in the midst of loss and suffering. We know the ultimate future, the promises that are held out to us, that Jesus will put an end to all that is wrong with this world. But right now, in this world, or right now in my own life, you feel left with a broken mess. What about now? If we're honest, our pain is not easily soothed, is it, by the future? Jesus' response doesn't immediately solve Martha's problem, but he gives her a growing perspective, further insight. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? What does he mean? Well, he is talking about Lazarus. Though he is, he's dead physically, he died trusting in God, so in a sense he's now spiritually alive. But it's more than that. It's more than just an insight into the future that the one who believes will live even though they die because he's talking to Martha and Martha is right in front of him. And Jesus, in a way, takes the attention away from the future and draws it to himself. It's as if the future is broken into the present and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What does he mean? Well, Jesus doesn't merely claim access to life beyond death. He is saying that he is that life himself. Life in John's Gospel is not mere existence. Rather, it conveys a fullness of life that we spoke about last week. Jesus is never the means to something else or better. He is that life himself. Which means that when one comes to trust in Jesus, when one believes in him, becomes a Christian, it's at that point that eternal life commences, even though we may die physically. Eternal life begins not when we die, but when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, when we become a Christian. So the life that Jesus is offering is not over there then, but it's one that's found in him now. It does not mean that we evade painful and horrible realities of loss and ultimately physical death, but it is a promise of life and life to the full. We find this hard to comprehend, but we'll explore what that means a little later on. 
So Martha stands before Jesus. She longs to have her brother back. And she will before long. But Jesus uses this moment to give her perspective. See, her need is not to have her brother back. It's to have Jesus. And this is the audacious claim that Jesus is saying when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying in the face of suffering, life, and in the face of death, in our grief, troubles, and sorrow, he is life. He's worth it. Perhaps we often ask ourselves in the midst of loss or confusion or sorrow, is following Jesus really worth it? Well, Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life, are his claim that he is. And so Jesus asked her, do you believe this? And Martha responds with a stunning faith. She says, yes, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who came into the world. And it's a question we must ask ourselves. Do we believe this? When faced with loss, pain and suffering, could following Jesus possibly be worth it? Well, Jesus is claiming he is. Do you believe this? But neat theological answers rarely do soothe either, do they? But thankfully, that's not all that Jesus offers. See, the next scene, Mary appears, Martha's sister, and falls at Jesus' feet, and she's weeping, and she uh, repeats in, in the same wording what Martha's reproach was. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so, you know, she's on script. We wonder, well, is Jesus going to reply on script as well? But we see in verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We see that he's moved to the point where he asks where Lazarus has been laid. And indeed, he's moved to tears, as we have in one of the shortest and most profound verses in the Bible, that Jesus wept. As an aside, I love the way in this story that you see how Jesus deals differently with these two women. He knows them, and so he deals with them compassionately and fittingly to their frame, in one sense. He doesn't treat them the same. It gives us great confidence that he knows us as well and he'll deal compassionately with us. He knows our frame and will be compassionate. So we see that Jesus responds not with mere neat theological answers but also with tears. But we can find these words confusing, particularly in this drama, because these tears, don't they, they seem somewhat unnecessary. They could have been spared. We've been told as much that Jesus knew that God had orchestrated these events, knowledge of which he was well aware. But he wept. And the question is, why did he weep? Because it brings confusion to us. Though I think we should be thankful that these words are there because these tears express Jesus' compassion to us. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of someone trying to bring you comfort, but they just don't quite get it because they haven't been, what, been through what you've, you've been through. It just doesn't quite cut it. 
They can't quite sympathise. Well, this short verse, Jesus wept, is a huge comfort to us. Jesus is God's divine son. This passage speaks of Jesus' origin. He is God's son from heaven. He is the Messiah. But these tears show us that this God is not some remote deity who doesn't care, watching from a safe distance. But rather, he is a God who is compassionate and who does something about it. He enters into our brokenness. He is a God who assumes a human nature and inhabits our suffering. Isaiah the prophet, speaking of the Messiah, describes him as a man of sorrows. In his life, he experienced the full measure of loss, pain, and suffering. What does that teach us? Well, Jesus knows the score. Whatever it is that we have experienced, we have one in our God who can sympathise with the full measure of loss, pain, and suffering. Our pain is not merely met with good theology, though it is, but with tears, because Jesus is compassionate. Do you believe this? Well, as we move towards our final point, Jesus doesn't just assume a human nature to simply sympathise with us, though. He has come to take that agony upon himself. He has come to defeat it. Death is described, as we said in the scriptures, as the last enemy. So how will Jesus win? We see that in verses 38 to 53. Death is a wound which none can heal. It's a reality we can't avoid. But in this next scene, Jesus goes face to face with the foe. He goes to the tomb and we're told that Jesus goes and it describes him as deeply moved by compassion. We've seen, yes, but there is also a sense in this word, these words that Jesus goes with, with a, an anger at the situation. There's a sense that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. If you've experienced loss, you've probably felt this. And so Jesus is angry. He's deeply moved. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so he goes to the tomb. He insists that the stone be removed. He prays within earshot of others, a prayer that speaks of his origin. He's the son of God from heaven. And then he shouts for Lazarus to come out. And we're told that the man comes out. The graphic detail of the man's state and smell give us the indication that this is not to be understood metaphorically, but that Jesus has raised this man from the death, from death. Jesus demonstrates that he has power over death. Death is not the final word for Lazarus. Lazarus has life beyond death. But in John's Gospel, these things are described as signs. We've seen Jesus perform many miracles or signs, and signs point to something. And so this, too, 
This raising of Lazarus from the dead is a sign. It's a sign that Jesus is who he says he is. He is of divine origin. He is the son of God who came into the world. He is the Messiah. But it also demonstrates to us what he has come to do. That he has come to destroy death. And because of his origin and because of who he is, he can have victory. How did death get defeated? Not just for Lazarus. How does the horror end? Well, Jesus, we see, will go on himself to experience death and rise to new life to put an end to this enemy. There are lots of enemies, but in 1 Corinthians, death is described as the last enemy. And it's last in the sense that it is Jesus' last enemy to come and destroy. It's not the greatest enemy, but it's Christ's last enemy. And when he has ruled over everything else, then he will come and defeat death. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this is what Jesus has come to accomplish. So in a sense, as we read this story, as Lazarus is raised to new life, it points forward or it leans forward to to Jesus' own death and resurrection when he defeats that last enemy. But that in itself too leans forward And points to the resurrection that we will have one day for those who trust in him. As the creed we recite most weeks says, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But to defeat the final enemy, Jesus has to face another tomb, not Lazarus' tomb, but his own, in order to defeat death and bring us with him. And he does it so that you and I can live. This is the death of which the priest in the next section goes on to speak about. And in great irony, their plan actually fulfills the purposes of God. Well, how we respond? Well, as we started, we've got many ways that we try and cope with death. And that's understandable. And it's hard to live with a sense of the reality of our own finiteness. There's a tweet, I don't know if you've seen it, and it's a skull, and then it says, remember one day you'll die, and it's this kind of one that people just randomly put every now and again, just to uh, put perspective into life. Tim Keller this week wrote, a piece. Tim Keller is a, a pastor in New York City, and last year he uh, was diagnosed with a pancreatic cancer. He says for years he'd been at people's bedsides and deathbeds, seeking to bring counsel and words of comfort. Yet, for the first time, he was faced with his own mortality. And he writes an honest and moving reflection on it. 
Um, I think I emailed it in a link, but I do encourage you to, to look that up. It was in the Atlantic this week. But he writes this, But as death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, I realised that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart, or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. This life-giving truth is what we see in the story of Lazarus, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. These life-gripping truths are the path to life that starts now. And Tim Keller speaks of the ways in which that has changed the way he lives now. He writes here, Since my diagnosis, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make heaven out of this world, the more we grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. When we turn good things into ultimate things, when we make them our greatest consolations and loves, they will necessarily disappoint us bitterly. But he continues, he says, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. He's grasped hold of those wonderful life-gripping truths that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus calls us to believe in him and believe in that promise. John Don said, Death, do not be proud. Though some may have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Do we believe this? Let's entrust ourselves to Jesus, even if for the first time. Let's close in prayer. Father, each day we rise and go to sleep only by your grace. It's a movement of a death and resurrection of sorts. May we, in remembrance of whatever happens, help us to know that Jesus' words today are a promise of our final rising in him that Jesus has laid down his life for us so that we could be raised with him and have life to the full. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.